Open your Bibles to Revelation 11, chapter 11. I love that song. I asked Carl to sing that before I preach for this reason. I think when we study through Revelation, sometimes we forget the end of the story. Sometimes you hear the judgments of the seals and the trumpets and the bowl judgments, which we haven't gotten to yet in this series, and we forget that one day we're going to reach where the gravel ends and the gold begins. First time I heard that album, I called Carl and said, you know, it's his album. He wrote the song. I said, have you listened to this album? This is good. Are, do you have any available? Y'all got some albums available? Where will they be after the service? In Heather's pocketbook. I thought you were going to tell me they'd be in the narthex. I grew up Baptist, so I don't know that term. And so I, uh, Carl and I were somewhere, I think at a Presbyterian church, and I was speaking, he was singing, and, and the lady said something to him about where he could put his albums and his you know, CDs and stuff, and she said, put those in the narthex. We thought, she was basically saying, you can't sell those here. We didn't know that that just meant lobby. How many of y'all never heard the term narthex? Bunch of Baptists. I know those hands on the back row are Baptists. That's, that's where Baptists are supposed to sit, right? Have you ever, do you ever have conflict of schedule? Do you, do you, like, I have a computer program that I do my schedule on, and if I try to put something in the same spot, you know, it'll come up. There's a conflict. Can't be two places at one time, no matter how you might want to try. I'm thinking, you mean even in the computer age, we can't be two places at one time. This morning, I want to talk to you about two very distinct different parties or celebrations. As I thought about that this week, I was reminded my 19th birthday, the day of my 19th birthday, had a party planned later in the afternoon. In the morning or right around noon, I was a pallbearer in one of my best friend's funerals. And I thought, what a difference of events. One, you're saying goodbye to a close friend. The other, you're celebrating another year of life. And I, that's what I want to look at this morning is that kind of dichotomy, that kind of divergence, that kind of two different things. A lot of you, this is your first Sunday and your only Sunday at the chapel. I'm preaching through the book of Revelation. And if you're interested, people ask me after the service, you can, you know, subscribe to iTunes and, and get the previous sermons. You can get the next ones. Now, you can't get them until I've preached them, all right? But uh, after this Sunday, about Tuesday, normally in the week, this one will be on, and so you can listen. But last week, we, we really got up through chapter 11. This week, we're in chapter 12, but I want to back up and pick up something in 11 that we didn't get to last week. I kind of mentioned it, kind of skipped over it, and then we're going to get to part of 12 this morning. So let me read chapter 11, beginning in verse 3 through verse 14. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. 
and their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Those from the people and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. That's the end of the sixth trumpet. And last week we looked at the seventh trumpet. And really the seventh trumpet's a good thing because there's celebration in heaven over the fact that God has established, he's taken earth back. He has established his kingdom and he will reign for how long? Forever and ever. We back up to this, this witness. And what you see in Revelation at the end of the seal judgments, at the end of the trumpet judgments, we're getting very close to the return of Christ. In fact, I would say after the seventh trumpet, we're talking weeks, if, if maybe months. That's how close we are once this happens. But before that happens, during the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, God sends two witnesses. Some scholars say that this is Moses and Elijah that have come back to earth to prophesy. If it's not them specifically, it's certain them in spirit. It is, it is of that order of a Moses or Elijah that has come back. And it says, God says, I will grant. Literally, I'm going to give authority to my two witnesses, ones who are coming to deliver testimony. They have authority, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, how long is 1,260 days? It's three and a half years. I, I did the math just to make sure. Pretty close to 300, uh, it's pretty close to three and a half years. And so God has granted them that authority for three and a half years. They're going to preach, and they're clothed in sackcloth. Now, they did not come to gloat over the fact that you people are sinners and you're going to hell. They came to preach, and they're clothed in a garment that indicated mourning. It indicated distress. It indicated that we are mourning over what has happened and what is happening, and yet what is to come, because what's coming is judgment. And the, what they are preaching, if these people would repent and turn, they wouldn't face the judgment that they're about to face. And so they preached for three and a half years in clothing that indicated grief and I've wondered what did they preach what was the word because there's a word that the people are going to use here in a few minutes that amazes me it kind of surprises me they would use that word I simply think they are preaching repent turn if you keep going the direction you're going judgment is coming now what does repent mean that's one of those deep theological words right that we're kind of afraid of I remember first time I ever heard it was some guy in my church growing up I was a teenager he was one of those preachers that hit the pulpit real hard, like a karate expert or something. He's trying to break my pulpit and, you know, repent. <laughs> I didn't know what repent meant. In fact, I've wanted to market repent mints in the bookstores. But uh, 
I didn't know what repent meant back then. Repent is a real simple word. It simply means to turn. It means to change. It means to change direction or have a change of mind. Why do people struggle so much with change? You know, you've heard the change jokes, or you've heard the how many jokes, like how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? You ever heard that one? The answer is, well, only one, but it's really got to want to change. Or how many church members does it want to how many church members does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is, change? <laughs> We're not going to change anything. And that's kind of the attitude of people. They don't want to change. And so when these prophets come and say, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're not going to like where you end up. And it made the people mad. And there were people that wanted to harm them. People were trying to kill them. Why? Because they didn't like what they were saying. Now, can I say that's going to happen during the Great Tribulation? But you know what? It's happening now. It's happening now. We live in a generation where people do not, it is not politically correct to simply speak the truth. That's a good thing. The, the truth that would change people, that would save people, that would protect them and deliver them from hell. There's people that don't want to hear that. And people now are actually being attacked. I read stories last week of preachers that have been attacked just because they were holding a sign that somebody disagreed with. Folks, I don't think it's going to get any better until Jesus comes back. And so they, people wanted to kill them. The only problem is if they tried, fire would come out from these prophets' mouth and devour it, literally eat up the people that were coming to kill them. So they were protected by God for three and a half years. Why? Because that's how, God, how long God decided they would preach. And until they were finished, nobody could touch them. They have power to shut up the sky. They could declare that rain's not going to fall. They had power to turn the water into blood. Does that sound familiar? Go back to Exodus. That was part of the plagues. And in it, just to kind of lump them all together, says any of the plagues, they could call upon those plagues at any time. And yet people weren't repenting. Now, I think people realized that God was doing it. If you go back and read, one of the things that amazes me about the Exodus account is that Pharaoh knew that it was the hand of God at work. His magicians knew God is doing this. And yet, they gave God credit. They just didn't repent, didn't change their lives. And then I love this. It says, when they were finished, okay, when they were done, after three and a half years, they had spent three and a half years preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. If you repent, you can have eternal life. After three and a half years, this beast comes up out of the abyss, the Antichrist. We'll talk more about him in a few minutes and later in Revelation. But he comes up and wages war against them. He overcomes them and kills them. And you're saying, wow, the Antichrist is stronger? No, uh -uh. the Antichrist could not touch them until God was finished with them. Their testimony was finished. Literally, it means this, they had gotten off the witness stand. They had been excused. They had had three and a half years of testimony before the people of earth. And when their testimony was over, they were killed. And then look what happens to their bodies. It says they laid in the street for three and a half days. And one of the greatest signs of dishonor in that culture, and really even in this culture, especially in the Middle East, was nobody would bury them. They were hated so much by the people that they just let them lay in the streets. 
And apparently people came by watching them. Because it says the people that were watching them. And some of the things they were saying. And after three and a half days, God breathed life back into them. They stood on their feet. Now, don't gloss over that. Could you imagine? You have hated these people for three and a half years. They're finally dead. You have rejoiced. That, that amazes me. The people at their death have rejoiced and celebrated. They threw a party. And what I really don't understand is they sent gifts to each other. <laughs> I don't get that. It's just funny to me. That they were so glad that these people were dead. It's like, you know, where, are you, where were they registered? I'm going to Target. I'm sending a gift over to Steve, my friend. Because we hated these people with a passion. So they gave gifts to each other? But you've experienced that party for three and a half days. And after three and a half days, they stand back up on their feet? What would you be thinking? I want my gift back? wonder if I can still, did you say the receipt? <laughs> no. What does it say? They, raised, they were raised up from the dead, and this voice, they heard a voice out of heaven saying, come up here while their enemies watched. The word for enemy is the word hateful or hater. And in the words of Jet Robertson, haters are going to hate. And that's what they were doing. They watched him go up into heaven, and then what happens? This great earthquake falls, and the city, a tenth of it is destroyed. 7,000 people. So if 7,000 people were destroyed, and that was a tenth of the city, about how many people lived in that city? About 70,000. Way to do the math. Now, scholars debate over what city this is. I think it's simply Jerusalem. We know that the population of Jerusalem in that time would have fallen about in that category. Back in the time this was written. But more than that, it says it's the same place where Jesus was crucified. So a bigger reason that I think he's talking about Jerusalem. In the great city of Jerusalem. And when all that happened, it says those remaining, the ones that weren't killed in the earthquake, were terrified. And they gave glory to God. What does that mean? Well, if you read three commentaries, you'll get five opinions on what that means. Some want to say that it means, well, they repented. But it doesn't say they repented. I think all it meant, it meant is they gave credit to God. You can go back into Exodus and see that the magicians of Pharaoh gave credit to God, but they didn't repent. So that's the first party. That's not the one you want to go to. I want to describe a better reason to celebrate. Let's look at verse 7 of chapter 12. Jumping ahead of where we were now last week. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage and really attack this in a couple of sections. There was war in heaven, verse 7 of chapter 12. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. 
And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. So a good reason to celebrate is this war in heaven. And you read about this war in heaven, you think, how long is that war going to last? It's going on right now. When we read the New Testament, we recognize there are principalities and power of the air that we're not battling against, but God on our behalf, his angels are battling on our behalf. There's war going on. And when you hear the name Michael mentioned in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, Michael's the one always associated with protecting the people of God. Did you recognize that? That there's war going on right now. We're in the middle of a war now. But folks, it hadn't gotten anything like it's going to get the last three and a half years. Why? Because the last three and a half years, commonly described as the Great Tribulation, is when Satan realizes, my time's short, he goes into the fourth quarter full court press. And I love the way the scripture describes it. Michael and his angels are waging war against the dragon, or Satan, and his angels. And then in almost an understatement in verse 8, it says, they were not strong enough. I just love that. They were not strong enough. Now we know going back to the Old Testament, inferences or allusions to the fact that when Satan fell before the creation of the world, he took a third of the angels with him. But Satan has still had access to heaven. There are times that Satan can go into God's presence. We know from the book of Job that he, was, he had a conversation with God about Job. Remember that? We'll talk about him being an accuser here in a minute. But what's going to happen one day is... God says, enough. There's no room for you here. Get out of my face. Your, your doom has been sealed at the cross. The final verdict has been pronounced, but the punishment hadn't been instituted yet, but it's about to be. They weren't strong enough. And so the dragon and all of his angels were cast down, thrown down to earth for the final time. right before this in the passage that I didn't read is, is just a, a reminder of the description of the woman, which is referring to Israel, has given birth to a son. Who is that? Jesus. And what did Satan want to do to Jesus? Kill him. Satan tried to derail the plan of God from the very beginning. In fact, the way the scripture says it here in, uh, in chapter 12, it's almost like he was just standing there waiting on the delivery to happen so that he could put Jesus to death. Just a couple of examples of that. When the wise men came, when Jesus was a toddler, maybe a year or 18 months old, somewhere in that time frame, the wise men come, and they come to the streets of Jerusalem, and Herod is upset because they're looking for the king of the Jews. And Herod thought he was the king of the Jews. And so Herod calls him into his presence and says what are you looking for well we're looking for the king of the jews well where do you think he is well we think he's somewhere nearby because we've seen his star herod calls in all the religious leaders and they say hey he's going to be born in bethlehem this prophesied in the old testament they knew where he was going to be born and herod says you go find him and then come back and tell me where he is so that i could go worship him as well did satan want to excuse me did herod want to worship jesus no what did he want to do 
put him to death. How do we know that? Because right after that, he realized he's tricked. The wise men didn't come back and tell him. So he had all the male children in that region from two years old and under killed. Who was behind that? Satan. Then what does Satan do? Jesus, when he's about 30 years old, he's born. He's about 30 years old. He goes to be baptized by John in the Jordan. Then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and prayer. What does Satan do? Tempts him. We know the big three at the end of it. What does he do? Basically, hey, I know where you're going with this. Hey, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdom. Or why don't you just prove to me that you really are the Messiah? Why don't you cast yourself off this pinnacle? Why don't you prove it by turning? I bet you're hungry. You hadn't eaten in 40 days, 40 nights. Why don't you turn those stones into bread? And all along the way, Satan is looking for an opportunity to derail Jesus. And you know what? When we get to the cross, he thought he had won. When Jesus Christ was crucified and laid in the grave, I guarantee you, they had a party in hell. Satan and his demons rejoiced. We've killed him. And then what happened? Three days later, he ruins their party. He rises from the dead. And Satan knows. He sees the handwriting on the wall. He's been defeated at the cross. And Jesus is coming back. So the celebration then in heaven is verses 10 through 12. After the war, there's a loud voice from heaven. And it says, now the salvation has come. The word salvation means rescue or safety or deliverance. All creation is about to be delivered from the ravages of sin. The power has come. Literally, God's omnipotent power. God has been all-powerful forever. But for a short time, He's allowed Satan some authority and some power, some dominion. He's allowed him a short leash. But as we celebrated last week in chapter 11, he finally says, enough. And he reestablishes or establishes his kingdom. He reigns as a sovereign, all-powerful ruler. The power has come. The kingdom has come. The authority of his Christ has come. Why? Because the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. You know that's what Satan's up to right now? He's the accuser of the brethren. How does he do that? Well, basically three ways. He, number one, he tries to accuse you before God. He loves to go before God and like he did with Job. He doesn't love you. The only reason he loves you is you've blessed him. Well, he has, that doesn't last long. God doesn't listen to that. Why? Because if you're a child of God, God sees you like he sees Jesus. So Satan can't accuse you because you've been forgiven. So then what does he do? Then he comes and accuses God before you. You know how he does that? God doesn't love you. Look what you've done. Oh, I know you've prayed a prayer, but look at your life. You're a sinner. And so he tries to convince you that somehow God can't love you. Or that he stopped loving you. Well, what does the scripture say? There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Can anything separate us from the love of God? Could heights or or depths, or principalities, or things present, or things to come. Paul says, I'm convinced that no created thing and nothing on heaven and earth could separate me 
from the love of God. Nothing can snatch me out of my Father's hand, and yet we often buy that lie. He also accuses the brethren against the brethren. Satan loves to stir up conflict. He loves to show up at church business meetings and elders meetings and deacons meetings and pastors conferences and Bible studies. <laughs> Why? Because he hates unity. He hates it when people worship Jesus. And so he tries to do anything he can to get you to stop doing that. And right now, that's the war that's going on. But there's coming a day when the accuser will be thrown down. And it talks about the brethren, the sistren, that have overcome. How do they overcome? First way they overcome, oh, let me say one other thing about the accuser of the brethren. I wrote a verse down. This isn't on the screen, but jot this down. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Just in case you're overwhelmed by the fact we got this accuser, you need to be overwhelmed by a bigger fact than that. We have an advocate. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation or covering for our sins. And not for ours only, but for also all of those of the whole world. What does that mean? Yeah, we have an accuser. We have an enemy, the devil, that loves to accuse us before God and God before us and us before each other. But bigger and better than that, we have an advocate. On our behalf, Jesus, right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, is praying for you. He knows the battle you're facing. He knows the struggle of this life. And so he constantly intercedes on your behalf. That's our advocate. So just in case somehow you could leave here and think, man, the Satan's big and bad. There's another verse. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Greater is he, little children, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan is a defeated foe. It says he walks about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know why Satan has to roar? Because that's all he's got. He was defanged and declawed at the cross. So now his bark is worse than his bite because he hasn't got any teeth. He's toothless. And yet he's still roaring. But I love how they overcame. They overcame, first of all, because of the blood of the Lamb. We've already seen this image in some earlier chapters of Revelation where the martyrs come and they're wearing these white robes that have been cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. And you think, wait a minute, if I dip my robe in blood, isn't it going to be red? Not if it's Jesus' blood. Because his blood cleanses. And folks, that's where our hope is. How can I stand before God clean and righteous? It's only because of the blood of the Lamb. It's only because of his death in my place on the cross. And yes, Jesus did shed his blood. And yes, Hebrews does say, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So we've overcome because of the blood of the Lamb. We've overcome by the word of their testimony, literally the evidence given. The word of your testimony. We've overcome. What is our testimony? Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And through Jesus Christ, I can have eternal life. And last, they did not love life even when faced with death. What does that mean? It means they loved Jesus more than they did this life. 
And folks, one of the biggest problems some people have in following God is they don't want to give up this life. Let me tell you, if you cling to this life, you're going to miss out on that life. And yes, you're in the time of revelation, and I think even during our day, there are people that are literally having to give their life up physically through death. There's martyrs even today for the cause of Christ. And certainly during the Great Tribulation, there are going to be people, men and women, who will give up their life under persecution of the enemy. But the reason they overcame is they loved what was waiting for them more than they loved anything that was on this earth. And they loved Jesus more than they did their own life, even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice. For this reason, rejoice. When I read this passage, woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down. I almost wanted to say to Georgia. But that's not just Georgia that he came down to. Where did he come down? Down to the earth. And why does the earth need to be in woe? It's because he's been cast out of heaven. So all of his energy, all of his, ex, all of his experience, all of his power that he has left, the little bit of power that Satan has, he's going to pour out during this last brief time on earth. And why is he doing that? The last line of the passage. He, he is displaying this great wrath, this mega violent passion. He's displaying it because he knows his time is short. So he's expending every bit of energy that he has. It's fourth down. He's on the one yard line. He's about to find out he's on the wrong one yard line. And he's about to be sacked for a safety and sent to hell. Folks, that's good news. Isn't that a reason to celebrate? That's why I love the song that Carl and Heather sang. I can almost see where the gravel ends and the gold begins. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the good news. God, we recognize when we read the images that we see out of the book of Revelation that during the great tribulation, times will be tough. God, in some ways, times are tough now. God, thank you for the reminder that this is not our home. We might be walking on gravel or asphalt or concrete now, but there's coming a day when we're going to walk with, on streets that are made out of pure, transparent gold. And we get excited about that, but that's just the paving material. Better than that, we're in your presence for eternity. What a beautiful day. What a great word. God, encourage our hearts with that. In Jesus' name, amen. Carl and Heather are going to come.